Donald Trump barely edged out Ted Cruz in Missouri's GOP presidential primary. But the billionaire swept across rural Missouri, including Jason Smith's 8th Congressional District. The Republican congressman joins us next to talk about that and much more on another edition of Politically Speaking. I think that is fair As to I say. say hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joe Manis is off today, so my very special guest host is... Rachel Lippman. I'm also a reporter here at St. Louis Public Radio. And the first ever Missouri congressman with the first name of Jason is in the building. It's a, it's a huge honor we have as our special guest today. It's a great name, and I'm glad to be here. It's Jason Smith, by the way, the congressman for the 8th District. Um, it is great to have have you here. I've known you since you were in the Missouri House. You used to sit behind me when we watched Supreme Court arguments together. You did it for fun. I had to do it for work. So you obviously have uh, interesting hobbies. So to speak. we're all growing up. We are. So. All, we're all growing up. Before we get into your background and issues, just tell our listeners the boundaries of the Eighth Congressional District because this is an enormous district, from what I understand. It's the largest. It's the largest congressional district in the state of Missouri. The most northeastern boundaries include Festus, Hillsboro, DeSoto, and then you go down the Mississippi River, includes the cities of Cape Girardeau, Sykeston, Kennett, the entire Boot Hill region, over to Poplar Bluff, Farmington, within 10 miles east of Branson, uh, 25 to 30 miles east of Springfield, and three miles from Fort Leonard Wood. It's 30 counties. I tell people those 30 counties are larger than the states of New Jersey and Massachusetts combined. I, I was going to say, are you disappointed, though, you didn't get to represent Branson, though? You know, I'm, I, I'm, I feel like I'm representing God's country, so we're pretty excited of the yeah. 30 counties. But if the congressional district ever grows, we'll take, we'll take Taney and Stone County. Well, I'm, I'm sure, though, that uh, Congressman Long, who I'm assuming has that uh, Branson, is overjoyed to have that in his district. So... Um, as I was talking to you in the green room, I think you have one of the more fascinating backstories of, of anybody in the congressional delegation of Missouri. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into politics. Um, I guess I have to summon Joe here where you went to high school as well, but I'm, I'm cringing when asking that question, but I'm going to ask You can leave it up anyway. to the native St. Louisan to ask it, which is where did you go to high school? So just tell us your life story in five or six minutes. Be happy to. You know, I my family's gr been, I've been born and raised in the 8th Congressional District. I was actually born in St. Louis because we didn't have a hospital at that time mm -hmm. um, that had a birthing unit in Salem. Um, so basically from nine days on, grew up in the 8th Congressional District. Um, my family's been there for seven generations. I can show you literally where my four times great-grandparents are buried. It's home. It's where my friends and neighbors are. But when you think about what is the typical pedigree of a member of Congress, it's clearly not uh, a roadmap that that comes from Dent County. Uh, from a small community, less than 5,000 people, Salem, is my hometown, went to school there from kindergarten through 12th grade, and then went on to graduate from the University of Missouri in Columbia with two degrees. Mm -hmm. One, um, business administration, emphasis finance, and the other one was ag econ. I graduated at age 20. Yeah, in three years, from three what years. I understand. How did you do that exactly? I'm not, I, I hate to cite Wikipedia here, but your Wikipedia entry said that you took 27 credits in one 
semester while working at a Walmart sporting goods section. Is that actually true or is Wikipedia <laughs> lied to me? <laughs> Wait, well, Wikipedia that, lies? Wikipedia is telling you the truth there. In fact, uh, at the University of Missouri-Columbia, they would only allow you to take 18 credit hours at that time without prior approval. Well, what I would do, I would take 18 credit hours and then at Columbia College, I would take evening night courses. They had eight-week, um, three-hour credits. So sometimes I would do six, sometimes I would do three. And so the the semester I did 27 hours. I did nine hours at night. Wow. Is there any reason why you wanted to get through college so quickly? You know, I knew what I wanted to do, and I wanted to go on to law school. Mm-hmm. And, and I just figured, why? Save the money. You know, that's less room and board, and that's what my plan was. Especially yeah. if you're paying for it yourself, which it sounds like you were. Exactly, and I didn't want to continue to have those higher higher student loans, so I figured three years instead of four. Now, I did want to touch on this as, as part of your background, but also part of policy before we get into your political career. I, I believe you're one of the few members of Congress that still have student loans. Um, I think that kind of probably makes the, that issue a lot more personal for you that affects millions of people. Um, tell us a little bit about that and kind of how you look at that issue, considering it affects you directly. It's very interesting with a lot of the issues that we have uh, full-out debates on in Washington. And when you have the personal experience and and it can say directly that I understand student loans, I understand what it's like to be paying student loans back, I'm still currently paying student loans, uh, undergraduate wasn't too bad. It was graduate school where the student loans really added up in law school. So it definitely gives a different perspective uh, when you're talking about issues that you clearly understand because you're living them. Now, uh, Senator Claire McCaskill has been on a statewide tour about college affordability. I'm going to play a clip from her talking about her idea about how she wants to allow refinancing of student loans. I'm not going to ask you to respond to it because it's an issue that I don't think you've, you, you know specifically about her plan, but maybe just as a way, a jumping off point to talk about the issue more. Here's what she had to say about that. This should be simple. I don't know why Republicans are opposed to allowing students to refinance student debt, just like we allow people to refinance their mortgages. Why should a student have to be paying higher than market interest to the government for their student loans. I mean, that's what's really offensive about this is the profit that's being made on the backs of these kids as they're struggling as they get out of school is going to the United States government. Now, I know that this has been kind of a Democratic talking point for a couple years now that they want to make uh, it easier to refinance student loans or make student loans more affordable. As a Republican, as, as somebody who and as somebody who, where the issue actually affects you directly, what, is, what have been kind of your thoughts on how to proceed on this issue from a federal perspective? It, it's something that definitely is broken and needs changes. So I would have to agree with that statement. I don't believe the government should profit, you know, off of their citizens. Uh, I, I, from being a conservative who believes in free markets and opportunity and competition, this needs to be on the outside. I, I, I strongly believe that people should be able to refinance and have lower interest rates. And so there's clearly some, some ground where I think Republicans and Democrats can work together on this issue. 
this is an issue that is of importance to me because it's important to a huge generation. There's only a few millennials in Congress, mm -hmm. and I'm considered by some as a millennial. I was going to say, you were born in like 1980, 1981. 1980. You're, 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 on, the, you're on the very edge of millennialness there. Right but. on the edge. So between myself and Miss Elise Stefanik, we argue whether a millennial considers 1980 or is it 82. Yeah, but... That's that's definitely something that I think will be be talked about in Congress more. But kind of continuing on your trajectory, in 2005, you were fresh out of law school. Frank Barnett's had won an upset victory to the Missouri Senate, although some would say it wasn't an upset because he was a good candidate. You know, we'll we'll let others decide that. And the seat that encompassed Dent County became open in a special election. Tell us why you decided to run for that seat and what that experience was like, because this was a situation where it was a seat that was previously held by a Democrat and you as a Republican were trying to take it back. What was that what was that decision making process like? You know, it was a seat that was held for over 20 years by a Democrat. And I believe from what I researched that only two prior Republicans had ever held that seat and both of their last names were Stillman, um, Dorman Stillman and David Stillman, yes. father and son. Um, Sarah Stillman, who was uh, our state treasurer, it was her husband. So it was an uphill battle. And, and I actually had just been practicing law back in my home um, in the Salem, Cuba, Rolla area, and literally was trying to find someone to run um, for that seat. And, and then people started saying, Jason, you should run for this seat. I was 25. I just turned 25 years old. Right. And then I thought, well, I think I can do just as good as anyone else. Well, then other people from Jefferson City actually said, no, you're too young. You can't win. And then they started calling around and trying to get other elected officials to run. And literally, people kept deciding to run, and then they decided not to run. But it did end up where it was like a a, a special election mm -hmm. where there was a nomination process. You had to go before the committees. And I had to beat out one gentleman, but did get the the Republican nomination. Went on in a in a special election. I can tell you, I worked that special election like like I've never you know I never thought a candidate could work. Some doors I would hit five times, and being a county that covers an area that covers four counties, your largest populated city was less than five thousand, but there's thirty five thousand people in your state rep district, that was a lot of gravel roads. Yeah, and spoiler alert to our readers, you ended up winning that race? We did. Um, we won that race uh, pretty significantly um, and beat a very popular county commissioner. Bobby Simpson, who, by the way, is running as a Republican for that seat um, now, but we'll, we'll let... We'll, we'll let that lie for a minute, but continue. He has. He switched parties, and now he's running for the, the same seat. I served in the state house for seven, almost eight years. In fact, until I was elected to Congress in 2013, out of 163 members, I was the most senior member. That, that's funny that you mentioned that because we've had Stephen Weber on this show, and he was elected, I think, at age 24 or 25. He is now terming out of the Missouri House at age 32 or 33 which I always have found to be kind of humorous, but you were basically in the same situation because when you did get the nomination to get become the GOP nominee for the 8th District, all these national publications were like, this super young person has been nominated, he's only 31 years old, shock of all shocks. Well, the subtext was, 
you had been in the House for almost eight years. You had held two major leadership positions, Majority Whip and Speaker Pro Tem. So in just a few short years, you had already like moved up almost to the speakership almost. You know, I was just I learned I learned quickly just growing up in life that uh, it's all about relationships. And when I got to the Missouri House, I just started building relationships with Republicans and Democrats from the very first week of the the freshman, you know, retreat where all the new freshmen would get together. And and that literally, I believe, is what led to the pathway to being elected to Majority Whip and Speaker Pro Tem. And it's also led to where we are in, in Washington, D.C. right now with serving on the Ways and Means Committee and also serving on the House Steering Committee. Mm-hmm. And it's clearly about building relationships. Yeah, okay. So before we kind of – I know that Jason – this Jason, I'm surrounded by Jasons right now, that he wants to you know sort of talk about kind of being on that committee – how then, um, kind of backtracking a little bit to you know your background and it not being the typical pedigree and kind of having this experience to get in there, how with kind of you know everything that running for office requires, how do you get people from the different backgrounds who aren't your typical congressional pedigree to do what you did and be like, I'm going to go do this? Because just as kind of a, uh, to add on to that point, the people that you beat for the nomination included a sitting lieutenant governor, a future speaker of the House, the former executive director of the Missouri Republican Party, um, you know, a former state treasurer and congressman, uh, you know, Jason Crowell, who's his own category. Like you beat he's some a great guy. And he's a great guy, by the way. He was on the show. You beat some pretty established people. And not just established, too. But, you know, you look at like Congress and the background is, you know, Yale, Harvard, East Coast, you know, or elite schools where you are. So not that University of Missouri isn't an elite school, but it's not thought of kind of nationally as this big deal. As Jason's I, giving me this glare over here. I think it's an here. elite school, but continue, Congressman. <laughs> You know, I that that's a very interesting question. I've looked at it several times, and it's very difficult uh, to move through the political hierarchy. I guess would be a good way. Uh, the fact that I was able to get elected in a in in the special election as a state rep was is something that helped prepare me for having the opportunity to run run for U.S. Congress. Uh, to run for Congress, it takes a lot of money. Um, a lot of people that you see run for Congress are independently wealthy, and they self-fund, or they have a lot of wealthy friends. Um, in our situation, I just worked hard to try to build um, build my name where I didn't have the money. And I mean, my father, my father had an auto repair shop and was a preacher, and my mother worked at uh, Briggs and Stratton, a factory on the assembly line. None of them had ever even been to Washington. In fact. The only time my parents have ever been to Washington, D.C. was the day I got sworn in the first time, and they haven't been back. They were there 24 hours, and they're like, we don't want to come back. If you ever run for something else, we might, but that's the only way. And, you know, I we I represent what is one of the poorest congressional districts in the country. Um, some numbers, people say it's 18th, um, whatever number. It's it's We deal with a lot of issues, and— and it's quite interesting being in Congress. And it was just a month ago I was on the House floor talking with some members of Congress, both Republicans and Democrats. And one of the members of Congress made the statement that, do you know anyone on food stamps? And I just started to laugh. I was like, do you know anyone on food stamps? I was like, in my family, I would go to my parents' and grandparents' house 
at Thanksgiving and Christmas and anytime I worked on his farm. And in order just to wash my hands, I had to go outside and pump water out of a cistern that they collected the water from the tin roof outside because they never had running water. They died never having running water. And but they they weren't ever on food stamps or, or welfare, but they qualified, but they were too determined not to. And so it, I think it it's very impactful whenever we look at all kinds of issues that affect your area. If you've lived it, you understand it, and you know it. And I feel like having the opportunity to to represent seven hundred fifty thousand people in Southeast Missouri um, is a unique opportunity that not everyone has, especially with the unique circumstances and challenges that that you experienced growing up. Well, just to kind of piggyback on that, when you were running in the general election, I remember reading like editorials from the Post-Dispatch talking about how that election should have been all about fighting poverty. They obviously endorsed your Democratic opponent, who is a, is a former state rep, Steve Hodges, a great person, by the way, um, who I got to know as well for, for when he was in the state house. But they kind of insinuated that you didn't really know what poverty was and didn't really understand it, which I always thought was kind of odd because knowing your background, you probably lived through a lot of this and you probably did understand it, but you're probably taking a different political perspective and philosophy toward it. I'm sure you've read all of that. I'd be interested to hear what your your perspective was when you read things like that. When I read that editorial, I really wanted to go to the board and just explain my case. Uh, but folks said, don't don't worry about it. But I, I feel like that it's so important that people know who you are and what you believe in. Um, because I believe that 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 based on how you were raised, a lot of times that helps affect um, the way you see things and look at things. And, and for whenever they judged me as like not understanding poverty and not knowing um, how my, my grandparents lived and, and how I was raised, it, it definitely um, it disappointed me, but you know, that's all right. Yeah. I can get my message out and I do that. And you ended up winning that race, by the way. So now you're in Congress, you're on the Ways and Means Committee, which is one of the most powerful and important committees in Congress. Um, my former congressman, Kenny Holshoff, was on that committee when he was there. I think he might have been the last Missourian to be on that committee. For our listeners, tell us a little bit about what that committee, in, I was going to say what, how, what that committee encompasses. but that, What it does. What it does, essentially, and why it's so important for the nation, essentially. Jason, it's the oldest committee in Congress. Uh, we've had several presidents serve on the Ways and Means Committee, and every committee in Congress has set jurisdiction of what policies we look at. And the Ways and Means Committee has jurisdiction over all revenues that come into our country, so all tax policy. It has jurisdiction over all welfare programs. So you see Speaker Ryan is talking about a lot of poverty reform and looking at that. That's huge interest, as you can tell, of mine um, to be on that committee to actually be part of the discussion. It's a committee that has all jurisdiction over Social Security over Medicare, over most of the provisions of health care. It's also the committee that has jurisdiction over all trade and representing the most diversified agriculture district outside of the state of California. We grow everything but citrus and sugar. Trade is a pretty big issue. And I felt like that committee needed more rural representation and individuals that understood poverty, understood um, the ag background, and the fact that Missouri hadn't had anyone since Kenny Holsoff. And literally to get on the committee, um, 
in, in Congress is much different than getting on a committee in Jefferson City. In Jefferson City, the speaker picks who gets to serve on the committees and the chairmanship. In, in Congress, it's the steering committee. And the steering committee is made up of roughly 30 members, and they're all members of Congress. Some are elected leadership. Some um, are elected members that represent a regional area. And, and literally, I had to go around and meet with every one of them and basically do job interviews and sell myself why it would be important to serve on that committee. And a lot of people, when I'd meet with them, they're like, well, maybe in your third or fourth term, you can get on the Ways and Means Committee. And I've never been one that's liked to wait around for things. And so I would always push back and tell them why it'd be so important and why Missouri needs a voice on that committee. We have eight members of Congress Mm -hmm. from the state of Missouri, and no one's on the Ways and Means Committee. Mm -hmm. The last two was Kenny Holsoff and Congressman Gephardt. Mm -hmm. And I have part of the old Gephardt seat when you look at Jefferson County and Mm Sanchin. And so I used every argument that I could, and uh, it was nice that they they listened. So one of the things that I think that you have sponsored pretty recently is a bill that, and correct me if I'm wrong and describe me incorrectly, it would basically require the Internal Revenue Service to get congressional approval before they spend any user-generated fees. Is that correct? That's and, correct. And tell and, me a little bit about it. Uh, I serve on the subcommittee of oversight on the Ways and Means Committee, one of the two. The other one is human resources. And under the oversight committee, we had the the commissioner of the IRS come in several months back and had the opportunity to talk to him, ask some questions, and uncovered that the IRS a couple years earlier requested several hundred million dollars um, in in funding from the Appropriations Committee from Congress to implement the technologies f- to basically imp- implement the the mandates of Obamacare because that's how they're basically monitoring and enforcing it. Well, Congress appropriated zero dollars for that. And what we discovered in that committee process is that the IRS still spent almost $200 million to implement the technology of the Obamacare mandates, but they weren't appropriated the money. And so that's how we discovered that they were using filing fees and other assessments and penalties that they had, which created a slush fund of roughly $400 million that they could spend any way that they wanted. And so what this legislation does it requires that any fees or assessments or penalties that the IRS collects, it automatically goes to the general revenue, and all their funding has to be appropriated um, by Congress. So why do you think that would be a good idea? Because I guess for the reasons that you just put forward, that might be one reason. The the IRS may say, well, we need some latitude of how to spend this money if, if Congress has to provide permission. It could get mired in, you know— the congressional morass, uh, you know, obviously there was a long time before Congress even passed a budget. So w- how would you respond to those contentions? I would say that the IRS is only created because of Congress created it, and it should only be funded by Congress, and it should be following the will of what Congress instilled. And I believe strongly in the Article One authority of the power of the purse and the clear legislative responsibilities. And from that sense is why... I feel like that all appropriations powers should be in Congress in appropriating 
you know, to any federal agency. So where is this in the process now? Because I've seen a lot of times congressmen announce that they sponsor bills. It sometimes doesn't go anywhere. You're in a position where you could put this through the Ways and Means Committee. Republicans are in charge. It could have a decent trajectory. Where is it kind of in the process right now? I filed it in the last two weeks, but I have been working with every um, member on the Ways and Means Committee. And Amongst the Republicans on the Oversight Committee, I've got everyone to co-sponsor, which is a great sign. So that means I have enough votes to move it out of committee. And literally, just in the last few days, I've been talking to the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, trying to push it to get a vote and a markup. That's what they call a markup in committee to get passed out of committee. And I think that there's real opportunity to get it moving quickly and off the House floor. So another thing that I think you've dealt with, too, in Congress is trying to pare down federal regulations this is just a kind of an aside for our readers, but when you were in the Missouri House, and I keep saying readers, I meant listeners, by the way. Well, we no, do have a web post. We on do it, have a so. web post, but I just wanted, I don't think I can actually cut that last part out. So I just wanted to make that clear. I remember when you were in the Missouri House, you actually passed state legislation kind of dealing with state regulation. So this is, it's not like the most super exciting issue on its face, but I'm sure it's a very important thing, especially when you start dealing with federal regulations. Tell me kind of a little bit how you've dealt with that issue from a federal level. You know, the legislation that we passed at the state level was bipartisan legislation signed by Governor Nixon that created a review process of existing state rules. When I was a state lawmaker, I thought that having over 6,280 rules at that time was too many, and we needed a process to review to make sure rules could be more narrowly tailored to actually carry out the true intent of the rules are the rules within statutory authority? And when I was looking at the federal level, there was really no process that was very similar to that. So that's why I created a bill similar similar to what passed out of the Missouri State House called the Scrub Act, Scrub Act which stands for Searching for Cutting Regulations That Are Unnecessarily Burdensome. Now, now, are required to have, is everybody required to have an acronym? I, I was going to say, <laughs> I, I have, I've noticed like this is, a, this is getting way off course. <laughs> But in the Missouri legislature, it's all HB6 or HB300. In Congress, you have to actually name the bills. Is that pretty common, they by the way? They try to come up with acronyms, You know, too. a lot of members name name their bills, but it's a, it's a great way to get other members to remember it and yes. for it to catch on. And that's why, like, the IRS bill, it's the IRS O's Act. Ah. You know, oversight while eliminating spending. Yeah. Uh, which, it, it takes some clever work sometimes yeah, sure. to look at it, but we— we're working at it. Yeah, but, but it could continue. The Scrub Act was, in fact, the first major piece of legislation to pass out of the House of Representatives in January, the very first week back from Congress. Was very excited. It passed with bipartisan support out of the House. And when you look at federal regulations, there's over 175,000 pages of federal reg- federal regulations, not different regulations, just pages. And it it hits the whole gamut from IRS to CMS to the EPA. And I'm just trying to put in a process that allows everyday citizens to to be able to go before a commission when they think a rule may be beyond its authority. Maybe the rule can be more narrowly tailored to actually carry out the purpose, sort of the same provisions. Now, before we kind of transition into politics, you mentioned trade, which has become an increasingly big issue in the presidential race on both the Republican and the Democratic side. Just philosophically, first of all, what do you think of the fact that it's become a big issue? And what is kind of your general philosophy about how the United States should be dealing with trade policy? Because as you mentioned before, huge agriculture uh, industry in the 8th District, it affects them 
tremendously. What's kind of your take on this debate? Trade affects us all, and I, I'm glad and welcome the debate for trade. I, I truly believe that every trade agreement that our country enters in with another country, we need to make sure that it's fair and truly free. And I have a lot of concerns. Like right now, we have a trade agreement called TPP that was negotiated with several Southeast Asian countries. And there's provisions in there that cause great heartburn. And and before we enter into trade agreements that's going to run with our country for years to come, we need to make sure that it is the best deal possible. And when you talk to, when you listen to the presidential candidate saying, we need to have better agreements, better deals, uh, make sure that we're not losing any jobs, that has to be first and foremost. And this is coming from someone who I consider myself a free trader. Mm -hmm. um, but the agreements have to be, have to be fair. Uh, another thing that comes to mind, if this is purely hypothetical, but it's something that has come up recently. You know, Cuba is in the news a lot. If they wanted to remove the embargo, would that have to go through the Ways and Means Committee first, or would that go through something else? It would. Uh, a lot of the, the parameters of that embargo would be coming through the Ways and Means Committee. And if you look at just the, the rice issue alone, mm -hmm. um, we grow a lot of rice in southeast Missouri. The only place in the state of Missouri that rice is grown or cotton is in southeast Missouri. Prior to the 60s, before the embargo, one of the largest uh, countries that produced rice from the United States was Cuba. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you would consider voting to get rid of at this point, or is that something that you would have to think about? There, I want to make sure that our ag commodities are put on the same level playing field as every every other commodity. And I know the president, by executive order, has allowed some financing of other goods, but ag commodities and ag goods aren't included. And I think that's something that we need to make sure that we're all on the same level playing field. Could become a big debate in the next few years, especially if you get reelected over the next five to ten years. So one of the things that looms large over Congress is who the president is over the last, I don't know, four to eight years when there's been, okay, I'll, I'm going to cut this out. Over the last four to six years, when the Republicans had at least control of the House, are now the control of the House and the Senate, there's a very acrimonious relationship between the president and Congress. Now you have a situation where um, you know, Republicans hold both houses, and now there's a presidential race going on, and who knows who's going to be the next president. You had endorsed Marco Rubio early on. He obviously was unsuccessful. You have Ted Cruz and Donald Trump left. Don't Kasich. And John Kasich. And John Kasich. I, I want to make sure that, you know, State Senator Ryan Silvey's preferred candidate gets some time as well. What, what, given what happened in the Missouri primary, what's kind of your take on the presidential election so far? The intensity of the voters is is immeasurable with some of the candidates. I think that when you look at Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, it's quite amazing. Uh, you hear... Bernie Sanders, and you hear Donald Trump that, you know, millions of people are voting who who typically don't vote that are voting for both of them. I believe them. Mm -hmm. uh, just looking at the results in, in the 8th Congressional District of Missouri, you can see that Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump won our congressional district. I was going to say, why do you think that happened? Because both of those candidates do not on paper seem to be candidates that would appeal to rural Southeast Missourians. Uh, for, for example, Donald Trump is a brash, 
billionaire from New York who has had other positions on social issues besides the what, what he has now, especially on abortion. It would seem like someone like Cruz or someone else would have won those counties. But Trump won your congressional district and many of the rural counties by a wide margin. Do you have any theories on why that occurred? Trump won 29 of the 30 counties. The only county that he did not win in our congressional district was Cape Girardeau. And what that tells me about Bernie and Trump winning our congressional district is that folks are angry. And Bernie represents the angry section of the party of the, the more liberals. And Trump represents the angry section of the party of the more conservatives. And when I travel throughout those 30 counties in southeast Missouri, people are just upset with what's going on in Washington, D.C. They want things done and they feel like nothing's being done. And the stuff they don't want to happen, they see as happening. So folks are very angry. Why do you think Rubio didn't catch fire in Missouri? You know, Rubio was doing a great job. And then I think whenever he started doing uh, – late attacks in some of the debates, that's where you saw his numbers start going yeah, down. Definitely. And and Marco is a good friend of mine. He's a he's a great gentleman who has incredible character and um, would be a great president. Uh, he he put all of his resources and his focus in Florida and didn't come to didn't come to Missouri Not on once. the fifteenth because the the election that mattered at that point was, was Florida. Florida. I, and I, yeah, and I asked because there were a lot of prominent Missouri Republicans, such as yourself, such as House Speaker Todd Richardson, many other state legislators who endorsed Rubio early on, which is usually a good sign because sometimes they come with pre-existing political organizations that can help another candidate out. But it just seemed to me when Rubio wasn't visiting the state and Cruz and Trump both were the writing was on the wall that he wasn't going to do very well here. So It was clear that his focus, without a doubt, was Florida. And he made that very clear to all of us. And, and Florida didn't work out. I want to play a clip now from a St. Louis County political activist. Her name is Frida Keough. Um, I believe she might be a committee woman in St. Louis County, but she's a Ted Cruz supporter. I asked her if Trump was the nominee, whether she would support him or not. This is what she had to say. If he wins the, nom if he wins the nomination, uh, I guess we'll all get behind him, but at this time, I really would like to see somebody else. Why? He's just a bit too erratic, and uh, I'd like to see a coherent policy from him, you know, he just shouts things off and the media just loves it. So I read in the Southeast Missouri, and you were probably asked the question whether you would support Trump, and I believe that you said that you would. Uh, first of all, is that correct? It's correct. I would support – of the three candidates that's left, I would support any of the three mm -hmm. if they become our nominee. So the reason I played that clip is there is a large segment. I would say by large, I could say anywhere from 20, 30, 40 percent that are pretty much dedicated to saying I will not vote for Trump under any circumstances. And for reasons that she just kind of brought up, what do you kind of make of that? And do you think that's going to make it tough for other candidates around the country and in Missouri to win if there's a large segment of the Republican Party that is not going to vote for Trump if he's the nominee? If there's a large, large segment of the Republican Party that stays home and doesn't vote, that clearly will affect everyone down ballot. Um, Republicans, unfortunately, uh, have a tendency that. They become more passionate in their own primaries. And a lot of times after the primaries aren't over, 
they don't join hands and get together. If you look back in 2008, Mm -hmm. whenever there was a very significant primary between President Obama and Hillary Clinton, very, very aggressive, um, some very tough feelings. But they all joined together. Um, and I hope that we can do it from this point. What's interesting is that I think Donald Trump is probably one of the most centrist presidential candidates we've had in a long time. Mm-hmm. And and some people will argue with me on this, but I think Donald Trump is winning these elections based on he's winning a group of Democrats, he's winning a group of Republicans, and a lot of independents. And when I say a lot of independents, these are people that will vote occasionally, but they are energized because he's caught their attention. When you check and do a poll on Donald Trump on name ID and it comes back 100%, yeah, that's incredible. That's there's, hard to be. There's very few candidates that have 100% name ID. And so I think if just the Republicans can unify that are against him, he's going to be very difficult to beat. But it's if they can unify so we've heard a lot of like hand wringing about the media missing sort of like the anger on both sides and not understanding why Trump and Bernie kind of caught fire. Do you think that like political figures like yourself or other members of Congress or sort of, you know, the the structure missed it too? Did just everybody miss it? Well, I think um, for what's happening with Bernie and Trump, you're seeing a lot of things aligning and a lot of people never would have predicted this or would have ever thought it would happen. So I I think a lot of folks just miscalculated um, how upset the American people are on both ends of the spectrum. Why are they upset? They're just upset because of the items that they believe in haven't been pushed, whether it's liberal agenda items or conservative agenda items. Because in a lot of sense, we're very polarized. And when you're looking at 435 members of Congress, 434 that I serve with, we are all so different. But for the most part, they represent areas that are totally different. Now, there's one campaign that this may be analogous to that I think you were kind of involved in. That was the 2012 U.S. Senate campaign. I know you were a big supporter of Sarah Steelman. um, And, you know, obviously Todd Akin won that primary. Todd Akin... And during the primary, didn't really attack his opponents as much as the others. But then he made his unfortunate comments. And then again, a large segment of the Republican Party here either didn't vote in that primary, in that general election. They voted for the Libertarian because the Libertarian got 6%, which is very high. Or some of them ended up voting for Claire McCaskill as kind of a protest, not necessarily because they liked her. Could you see a similar scenario occur if Trump is the nominee or even if Cruz is the nominee, because there's a lot of people that are uncomfortable with Cruz because he's too conservative on issues. Or if you're a Trump supporter, you're not really liking how he's handling the campaign. You know, uh, we've been traveling the last two weeks and hitting all 30 counties in our congressional district. And I will not forget what a farmer told me in Sykeston down in Scott County. He said, and this is what he said. He said, Jason, if... uh If Donald Trump becomes the nominee of the Republican Party, the Republican Party establishment needs to apologize to Todd Akin because, you know, Donald Trump has said a lot of things over the history of of his presidential cycle and even before. But I think that when you look at that presidential race, a lot of people stayed home Mm -hmm. and a lot of people didn't stay home. You mean the U.S. Senate race? In the U.S. Senate race. Yes. A lot of people stayed home. And a lot of people may have not stayed home, but they just didn't vote in that race. Right. 
And this could be the same type of situation that we experience here, but the intensity level for the Bernie voter and the Trump voter is is pretty intense yeah. of their supporters. And a lot of times it's about voter turnout and it's about intensity. Now, my last question for you, if let's say if it's a Bernie versus Trump race and one of them becomes president, as someone who's going to have to deal with that executive uh, being kind of on this this anger push, how do you think that either one of them would govern as president? You know, I think I think that Donald Trump, if he was the nominee of the Republican Party and became president, he's a businessman. And that's what attracts a lot of people to him. And I do know that he has had several conversations with the Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm in the gym in the mornings with Paul. And literally the night that that Rubio suspended his campaign, Donald Trump in his press conference said, I've been talking to Mitch McConnell. I've been talking to Paul Ryan. So the next morning I go to the gym and I'm like, what has Donald Trump been talking to you about? And and Paul said that that Donald has been talking about working together. Mm-hmm. And and I truly believe that as a businessman who has had several successful companies, that he would help place people in the right cabinet positions to hopefully accomplish policies that he's been pushing. We'll have to see if he actually gets the nomination. That's not a sure thing. Who knows? They go to Cleveland, and maybe you'll become the presidential nominee at this point. That will not happen, Jason. You, you, uh, just to go back in history, back in 1880, um, uh, James Garfield, who was a, a sitting member of Congress, I believe he was actually on the Ways and Means Committee, had made a very rousing speech for a kind of trailing candidate. Uh, I think his name was Sherman. It was such a good speech that he ended up being the nominee after a contested convention. I'm not sure that'll happen with you, but stranger things have happened. I don't think it's able to happen legally anymore, isn't there? Like a, They just talked about this this morning on NPR, that there's a rule that it has to be somebody who's one of the who gets the majority plus one of the delegates. From my understanding, um, the rules take an effect at the convention because every convention's delegates make the rules. And so we're in the process right now of picking delegates all over the country. The, the, the caucus starts actually Saturday where each one of the counties pick their delegates and then they go on to the congressional caucus on April 30th and then the state caucus. So it's the delegates that choose the rules. But if you look at rules based on four years ago, that's the case. But uh, if it's about an individual giving a speech for another candidate, maybe I'll I'll just make sure I don't give any speeches in, you may have in to be Ohio. Out, you may have to be out of the room at that time. Well, Congressman, <laughs> it was a pleasure having you on our show. Thank you for making the trip out here. We really appreciate it. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Rachel on Twitter at... At R. Lipman. I believe you have two Twitter accounts, one official and one campaign. Exactly. You can follow us on our official account, at Rep. Jason Smith, or the campaign is Jason Smith Mo. We'll be back next time. Until then, so long.